in entering into what we're going to be sharing together, I'm going to ask Joel to come up and we're going to read. So if you have your Bibles, you can, and you want to read, otherwise you're welcome just to close your eyes and to listen to the text being read. It's from the book of John, chapter 19 and verse 38. And just by the way, to say, I'm always mindful of what Paul said to Timothy, young pastor that he left in the church at Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Timothy, give attention to the public reading of the scriptures. And we don't often read the Bible publicly for us all just to listen. So listen to this whole passage, which is John's account. I'm going to be talking from John, John's account of the burial of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus through to the bottom. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who had, was behind him, arrived, and he went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been under Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb, the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead or that he was to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, 
she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that, she was the, that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in her Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So, Father, what an honor to be in your presence again. What an honor to hear your word read to us. What an honor to relive and remember the resurrection of your son, Jesus of Nazareth. What an honor, Lord, to be gathered as your people in this moment, this resurrection morning. I pray that you would send your spirit powerfully into our hearts and minds, and as I speak, Lord, enlighten our minds, open our hearts. May we come out of the tomb of darkness and of death. May we see the light of your revelation, the resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray, speak to us. God, I pray, minister to us. Break the chains of darkness. Break the chains. Roll away all the stones, Lord. Let the light shine in this morning for each and every one of us. Holy Spirit, enable me to speak the words that you want to speak to us this morning. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, we did Thursday night. We relived the Passover <clears throat> with Jesus, trying to re reconstruct the emblems and relive historically something of what Jesus went through with his 12 apostles in the upper room. Then we had a brief meditation on Gethsemane. After the supper, he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed in deep, great agony, wrestling with his own will and his Father's will. And then on the Friday morning, we met at 9 o'clock, and we relived and remembered 
the crucifixion of Jesus and his suffering um, on the cross. In fact, I was just talking to um, one of the women in the foyer this morning, and she said she had all plans for Friday morning, but she was here, and she was so overcome and overwhelmed with, with what we shared together that she went home and had to cancel her plans and just stayed at home and read the scriptures and prayed and wept and was all emotionally raked up at realizing the depth of suffering that Jesus went through for us. And then this morning, of course, is the great victory of the resurrection. So Mark's gospel, Mark is the earliest gospel that was written, his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Then Matthew and Luke were the second two gospels written a couple of years after Mark. And John's gospel was written towards the end of the first century. It was the latest gospel. But I've chosen to give an account of the resurrection of Jesus from John's gospel because of all three, he most powerfully um, brings up all the connotations of the new garden of Eden and the new creation because of the resurrection of Jesus because sin and death is finally defeated. The idea of the resurrection being the new creation of God, the beginning of the new creation in the middle of this old, cursed, broken creation is also in the Gospel of Luke. But John's Gospel brings it out most, most particularly. So what I'm going to do is just go through the text that Jill read and just refer to some points here and there. And hopefully the meaning of the power of the bodily resurrection of Jesus comes home to each one of us, but not only informs our minds, but also liberates our hearts. Because the, the whole picture here of death and the power of death is now broken as Jesus comes out of the tomb. And we in many ways are entombed in, by different powers in our lives, entombed in sin, entombed in compulsive lying, entombed in the darkness of depression. In fact, I was sitting here in worship and my phone went zik, zik, zik in my pocket <laughs> and I was naughty. I had a look at it and it's from a friend in Port Elizabeth who sent me a message to say, please pray for me. I am so depressed. It's not Robin. It's someone else. And appealing to me to pray, pray for him this morning on this resurrection morning. We are entombed in many ways by the power of, of, of death. And the power of death is because of sin. Death entered into creation because of human sin. God never ever planned death. And so the, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the defeat of the power of sin and primarily of death. And whatever entombs you in darkness, in any form whatsoever, this morning you are invited to come out of that tomb because Christ is risen and he has the power to bring resurrection to you in, what area, in whatever area of life you need resurrection to new life and to new hope. That's the fundamental message here. So just to start off with, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus on the Friday afternoon at, at 5 o'clock asked Pilate for permission to take the body of Jesus and to, and to bury Jesus' body. And they then took him down from the cross, these two elderly men, and they brought 30 kilograms of spices, which was fit for a king. 
and they washed his body clean from all the blood. Then they anointed his body and embalmed his body with cloth. And then, it, and then John deliberately says that at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so he introduces the idea of a garden right near to where this rocky outcrop of a hill that looked like a skull called Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified on top. And below on the side probably then was the garden. And they washed his body, took it down, embalmed him, and they carried him down into this tomb. But this is the first idea of a garden. And of course in Israel today, in the Middle East, it's in the northern hemisphere, so it's springtime. It's our autumn, it's their spring. So the garden immediately is all a connotation of this luscious, green, blossoming garden full of new flowers and blossoms. In contrast to the place of the skull, the crucifixion of the bleeding, broken, dead Messiah who's taken down from the cross and brought into this garden and laid to rest. And of course, the first garden, and most Jewish writers are so steeped in Scripture, they would understand that paradise lost, the Garden of Eden, is the hope of humanity, that one day when God becomes king in his Mashiach, that Garden of Eden, paradise, will not only return, but will be established on earth to the ends of the earth. And in this garden, in contrast to the first garden of Eden, there was a tomb. In the first garden, there was no tomb because God never intended or planned death. Death entered into the human race as a foreign enemy in God's pristine creation. God made Adam and Eve and all that he made to live in perfect shalom and harmony. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, death entered creation and death began. And so death instinctively, for all human beings, is foreign to our nature, is our enemy, and hence the Bible talks a lot about the fear of death. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, mortality entered the human race, and our bodies are mortal, and we all journey towards death, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not. <laughs> it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, God, it is appointed for all human beings to die once and then to appear before God to account in judgment of our lives. So death is our enemy. Death is foreign to us. God never planned death, but because death entered the human race through Adam and Eve's sin, he undoes death through his plan of redemption. The first garden had no tomb. This new garden has a tomb in it to show the reversal of death. In the midst of a new garden, which is the beginning of a new creation, and then it says, then John says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. Now, John, the way John writes his gospel, he uses days in particular to, again, symbolize. John's gospel is the symbolic, mystical gospel. He uses a lot of symbolism. The first day of the week, of course, is the Sunday. But in the Jewish mind, there are six days that God worked in creation, Five days. On the sixth day, God's work was the pinnacle of creation by creating human beings in his image and in his likeness. And then God rested and gave over creation to human beings to rule on his behalf. 
as his image bearers. So God rested on the seventh day. On the eighth day of creation, the implication is that human Adam and Eve ruled over creation with God on God's behalf on the eighth day. On the eighth day of creation. So John is connoting the eighth day of creation, which is the Sunday, the first day of the week. Shabbat starts on the Friday night, the Sabbath, the day of rest. And on the Friday, Jesus was crucified. And what John does very carefully is with the days. In fact, I don't have time, but if you read John's gospel, John chapter 1, Three times he says, on that day this happened. Then the next day that happened. Then the next day that happened. In chapter 2 of John he says, on the third day Jesus went to a wedding at Cana of Galilee. And throughout John's gospel, he's talking about days, next day, this day. Why? He's drawing attention to the Jewish calendar and how God works. And you know what? In chapter 19 on the crucifixion, he says, on the Friday, he says, on the sixth day. On the Friday, the sixth day, when Jesus was crucified, the day before the Shabbat. And the way John presents Jesus on the cross, Pilate says to all the Jews gathered at the trial early in the morning, he says, behold the man, look at the man. And it's the sixth day of creation, and this now is the new humanity created in God's image on the sixth day of creation. But when they look at him, he's he's so broken and beaten and he's marred beyond human recognition in the way that he was flogged and beaten and his beard torn out with a crown of thorns. Behold the man, the sixth day of creation. And then John ends up, and only John does this. Luke, Matthew, Mark, don't do it. Only John does this. On the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon towards the end of the sixth day of creation, this this. This man made in God's image, but having taken upon himself all of human violence, all of human hatred, sin, rebellion, death, brokenness, racism, sexism, classism, rape, violence, everything onto his own body on that sixth day. The image of God was marred and broken beyond human recognition on the sixth day. Then it says, John ends up by saying, on that sixth day, when he was dying on the cross at three o'clock in the afternoon, it says, he cries out with a loud cry, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and then it was the Sabbath. He rested. And from the Friday evening when he was taken down from the cross until the Sunday morning, the Shabbat, he rested in the tomb. Now, this is the eighth, eighth day of creation, the Sunday morning, which is a new creation with a new Adam to bring about God's new garden of Eden in the midst of the old. That is the implication here, symbolically, in what John is saying. So on this first day of the week, the, the, um, the Sunday, <clears throat> that Mary went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance of the tomb. And again, here is the symbolism on the Sunday morning, is the, in a new garden, death has been defeated. The stone that seals us in whatever slavery we have been bound to. You know, Jesus says in John chapter 8, John continually connotes earlier texts that he talks about. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, if you commit sin, you become the slave of sin. Human beings are slaves. 
entombed in the darkness and the death of sin. Compulsive sinning in many different forms. All, all of our brokenness. And the idea here is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the stone has been rolled away. And you can come out the tomb, no matter how deep or dark your life has been, in whatever area of life, the light now shines in brightly. Jesus is risen. And the question here is a matter of faith. Do you believe that or not? Because the next text is that um, Mary, and again, remarkably, John shows how, and all the other Gospels show, how that Jesus first revealed himself, or the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. And of course, in the, in, in the world of, of Jesus' day, women were legally unreliable witnesses in a court of law. And so, the, because of the patriarchal society, the, the prejudice was that women were first, Eve was first deceived, and women are deceptive, and you can't trust the testimony of a woman. Uh, can you believe it in our modern world? And so, the fact that women, the, the woman followers of Jesus, who were the last to leave the cross, when he died on the Friday afternoon. They were there right to the end. In fact, they watched Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body down and wash his body, the woman who followed Jesus. And it lists the names of the women who were there on the Friday afternoon. And they were the first ones there on the Sunday morning before the men. Viva woman, viva! <laughs> long live woman, long live! Mayebuya woman, Mayebuya, come home, come home. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit of my 12 years working in Soweto coming out. Um, so she came to the tomb, and of course, um, she, she saw that the stone was rolled away, and then Peter came r running, and the, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, who wrote the, the Gospel of John, he always refers to himself as the beloved disciple. He was the youngest of the twelve, probably 17, 18 years old, maybe 19, but he was by far the youngest of all the twelve. And of course, um, it actually says he, John himself says, I outran Peter later on. And I got to the tomb first, but that old belly was a bit slow on the run there. Um, and, and John looked in and saw the cloth, the head cloth on one side, the body cloth on the other side, and he believed. But his comment in brackets later on is that the others didn't believe because they struggled to believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. But John's hoing in a bit of his own insecure self to bolster up his ego in the story that he was the first one there. But of course, Mary was the first one there. And so she said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have, they have taken him. And then John tells the story of how Peter and he run to the tomb, and they look in, and they see the cloth separate, and they know that his body is missing, but they were slow to believe that he was risen. He was physically, bodily made alive again in a glorious resurrected body. And they were slow to believe that. And just to say, I take great comfort from the Bible because frequently the, the human honesty, <clears throat> the, hum, the humanity of Scripture uh, comes through. As an example, in Matthew chapter 28, 
According to Matthew, the last words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 28, right at the end of his gospel, he says this, he tells his disciples to go meet him in the Galilee on the mountain before he ascends into heaven. And it says, when they, when they went there, they saw Jesus, and then Matthew says, and they fell down and worshipped him, but some doubted. I don't know if you ever doubt. I think all the Christians here this morning never, ever have any doubts about anything. The reality of human fallibility constantly comes through in Scripture. Mary went in and she looked. The others came in and they looked and they were aghast. And their conclusion was they've stolen his body. They've taken him away. They unwrapped his body. Where have they taken him? They were slow to believe that he had been raised from the dead. Although, frequently, they say that the scripture says Jesus, Mashiach, the Jewish king, would rise from the dead. And it's referring by that to Daniel and to Isaiah, where there are particular prophecies about the resurrection of the dead. In any case... Then the disciples went back to their homes after looking in the tomb and not sure what to make of it and probably being confused and aghast that his body was missing. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. It's the same phrase as on the Friday afternoon. But Mary, the same Mary, and Jesus' mother, and the mother of, of, of the sons of Zebedee stood at the cross watching and crying with Jesus on the cross. It's remarkable, the faithfulness of the woman as devoted followers to Jesus who remain when all the men run home. You can see I'm fighting for women's rights this morning. <laughs> no, but nevertheless, tongue-in-cheek, it is true. Mary stood and waited outside the tomb, and she was crying. She was crying because she believed they had taken the body of her rabbi, whom she believed was the Lord, the Messiah, and that his body had been taken and was not in the tomb. And as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And again, here is the connotation in John, clearly echoing the Garden of Eden, because when Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, lest they eat of the tree of life, God says. And he put two cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, to guard the entrance. And this is clearly a reversal of that. Death, a tomb. Death entered the first garden because of Adam and Eve's sin. In this new garden, full of flowers, springtime, there was already a tomb where death was present. But the tomb is empty. And there are two angels, two cherubim, guarding that tomb to basically saying, don't come back in here. Death has been defeated. The tomb is empty. You are free. And Jesus is now the new tree of life in a new garden who gives eternal life to all who eat of him, the tree. 
So the old rugged cross that we sing, how many of you remember that hymn? The old rugged cross stands forever as a symbol as the, in the new garden as the tree of life that we eat from to live God's kind of life, both here and forever. And so there were two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the left. And they asked the woman, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not recognize or realize that it was Jesus. This is how John puts it. And this is, this, is, this is so tender, so delicate, so beautiful, so emotional when you pick up what John is trying to portray here. There are two turnings of Mary. The first turning is when she looks in the tomb and she's weeping and talking with the angels and, they, and, and his body is not there. Where have they taken him? Then she turns around and through her tearful eyes she sees a figure in this beautiful garden. And she looks at that figure, but John says she does not realize that it is Jesus. Maybe her tearful eyes were blurring the vision of who this man was, or maybe there was more happening here. Then this person in the garden, whom later clearly says that he is the gardener, he says, woman, why are you weeping? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said. So John is clearly saying, Jesus is the new Adam in a new garden. And he's the new gardener looking after God's new creation. God created Adam and Eve in the first garden to be the gardeners looking after the pristine beauty of his shalom creation to take God's garden to the ends of the earth. The mandate of the first human beings created in the garden was to look after the garden and multiply and take the rule and reign of God's peace, order, well-being, abundance, prosperity to the ends of the earth. In other words, expand the garden of Eden. Hebrew for Eden, we say the garden of paradise or paradise. It actually means delight. The garden of God's delight. It was, it, it was effusive and ebullient with growth and flowers. The garden of Eden was paradise on earth, heaven on earth, where God walked with them in transparent relationship in light. Their bodies shone with light until they sinned, and the light went out, and they became aware of their nakedness. And then mortality, deception, Broken emotions, physical sickness, and death set into their bodies because the lights went out. Here is a reversal of that whole thing. Jesus is the new gardener in a new garden of the new creation. And then when he says to her, who are you looking for? Th thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried the body of my Lord away, please tell me where you have put him. And then I will get him and find him. And then this gardener says one word to her. Mary. He calls her by name. First it's woman. 
where she sees him but doesn't recognize him. And then it's personal Mary. And when he says Mary, she suddenly realizes, my Lord, my Rabbi, Yeshua. And her response is, she turned towards him. The first turning is away from the grave and looking, and she sees her Savior, but she doesn't fully recognize him. After hearing her personal name be called, she turns further. She turns again, the second turning, and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni. It's not just Rabbi, it's Rabboni. My Rabbi, my teacher, my Savior, my Lord. As Thomas said on the week after the resurrection, when the apostles reported that Jesus was alive from the dead and he wasn't at the first meeting, Thomas, doubting Thomas. He said, unless I touch his wounds, unless I put my hands into the holes where he was crucified, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Thomas, don't doubt, but believe. And Thomas's phrases, his response is, my Lord and my God. You are no longer just a rabbi, you're my God. Your, resur- your bodily resurrection has vindicated all that you've ever said and done in your whole life and all your teachings. We now know that God became human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth and death cannot defeat God. God defeats death. And so it's my rabbi, my teacher, my Lord. And Jesus says to her, do not cleave unto me. The word here is hold in the NIV. The Greek word that is used connotes the book of Genesis, once again, the story of creation. Remember when God made Adam and put him in the garden to to look after the garden? Adam was lonely because he was alone. You remember that? And then God put him to sleep and took Eve out of his side and fashioned her. The word in creating Eve is, is fashioned as opposed to making Adam different words. The word fashion implies an, a work of art and beauty, as in it's used, applied to the creation of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. It's a particular work of beauty. And then God brings Eve back to Adam. And when Adam sees Eve, what was his response? Besides his response was, no, that's all South African. Um, he, he would have, he was, if he was Jewish, he would have said, Oi, No. The revised proper version, when he saw Eve, is, You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And... You instinctively have been the missing one that completes me that I've been looking for instinctively since I came into being. And so when Adam and Eve came together, he said, You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave, cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one. The word cleave. You know that the Hebrew Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Hebrew 
Bible, as it is called, was, was written in Hebrew with only a few little sections of Aramaic in Daniel. But that Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek language in 150 BC by 70 Jewish scholars in Alexandria. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint, because the Latin Septuagint means the 70, the 70 scholars. And when Jesus was alive and his first followers were alive, they had available to them the Hebrew scriptures as well as the Greek scrolls, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. John often quotes directly from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the word here, to cleave, connotes that same phrase. As God created the Adam and created the Eve out of the Adam and brought them together, they cleaved and they become one. And Mary here is symbolic of the new Eve in the new garden that wants to cleave to the new Adam, the new gardener. We are the bride of Christ. Have you ever heard that phrase? Christians, followers of Jesus, we are the bride of Christ, created out of his side. And I don't have time to go into it, but John is the only one who reports, not Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when Jesus' side was pierced, out came water and blood. And in his, gospel, in his epistles, he says, we are born of water and blood out of the side of Jesus. We, the followers of Jesus, are taken out of his side and made into his complementary other new eaves. And we are designed to become one with Jesus, to consummate in a union of marriage. But Jesus says to her, don't cleave to me. And this is a mystical, cryptic comment, because I've not yet ascended to my Father, and to your Father, to my God, and to your God. And again, the commentators, the biblical scholars try to understand this. And possibly, when Jesus rose again in his body, he, for for 40 days in his resurrection body, he appeared and disappeared all the time. Appeared and disappeared. In other words, he would ascend into the presence of the Father or be in the presence of the Father and be on earth because he had a resurrection body. Possibly, he would, there was some mystical happening where he would cleanse the heavens with the offering of his blood um, in order to open the way of the spirits of the dead who were prisoners of hope in Abraham's bosom because the apostolic creed says that when Jesus was crucified, he was dead and buried, and he descended into hell. And the early church theology is that Jesus routed hell and took the prisoners of hope who died in faith under the old covenant in Abram's bosom, and through his resurrection led them into the presence of God, having cleansed the heavens with his own blood. So that's a whole lot of theology in one statement. God be with you as you try to work with that one. Um, but still, th then, then Jesus says, uh, I've not yet ascended to my God. Don't hold on to me right now. You can hold on to me later. And then Mary says, and then, then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with this news. I have seen the Lord. And the word here, Lord, is Kyrios. I have seen the Lord. He told, and she told them, of course, he wrote in Greek. It would probably be in Hebrew, I've seen the Messiah. She told them that he had she and she told them that he had said these things 
to her. So that is the account of the resurrection on the Sunday morning. And it all has the connotation of a new garden, a new creation, in which death and the grave is defeated, and the end-time resurrection at the end of the age that the Hebrew Scriptures speak of in the book of Daniel, in the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah, and in Ezekiel. They all three prophesy the resurrection of physical bodies when God becomes king in Israel, when God comes to earth in his Messiah. The end-time resurrection has already begun in history 2,000 years ago because a human body has been raised from the dead. When Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, when Jesus brought the, the widow of Nain's son back to life, when Jesus raised the young girl, uh, the 12-year-old young girl back to life who died and said, Talita kum, my little lamb, sit up. They were not resurrections, they were resuscitations. They were raised back to life. Resurrection is different because Lazarus died again and was buried and the others died. So just bear in mind there's a difference between the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus that now lives forever at the right hand of God and imagine this, in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, since the resurrection of Jesus' body 2,000 years ago and his ascension into heaven, there is a human body in the Trinity. The Trinity has forever been changed and redefined because there's a human body albeit resurrected and glorified and shining with light in the Trinity. Our sin and rebellion and death and hatred and violence, all of human pain and rebellion against God led to God becoming a human being so that he could redeem us. And in that redemption, he is forever changed as we become one with him. We are his bride. He is our bridegroom. We are his created other part that in a mystical sense completes God as God completes us. And so lastly, and I think I must now end and we're going to have a time of ministry to minister the power of the resurrection of new life. So the story ends here, or it doesn't end because there are other Stories, resurrection stories that John has, which I'm not going to go into. But the last one that Joel read is this. Listen to how remarkable this is. Now, no, John was a Jew. And in his gospel, he's writing both to Jews and to Gentile believers. And he says this cryptic comment, which is very un-Jewish. Verse 19 of John chapter 20. So on that evening, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the, with the doors locked because of fear of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities that were looking for the disciples, because the rumor was already probably getting out that uh, Jesus was alive, and uh, you know the story how that Pilate and the Jewish authorities agreed to start the fake news that his disciples stole Jesus' body, and are hiding it, and now they have started a new narrative called fake news through CNN. 
not Fox News. <laughs> Don't go there. Uh, that they stole his body, Jesus' disciples, and now they're passing the rumor that he's alive and he's risen from the dead in fulfillment of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So they were looking for them. The early Christians on the Sunday morning, having experienced through Mary and the woman, and then Peter and John who ran up to the tomb, that actually he's alive. This is a mystery. We're not too sure what to make of it, but he's possibly risen from the dead, but he's definitely alive. But they locked themselves in a room, hiding away, and suddenly Jesus materializes in their midst. But John starts off the Sunday evening by using a most un-Jewish term. He says, on the evening of that first day of the week. So when in, in Israel today, in Judaism, when does, it, when does the new day begin and the, and the day end? So every day ends when the sun sets. So Sunday, today, when it's, today it's a, in autumn it's about 6 o'clock the sun goes down. Here, am I right? So in Israel today, at 6 o'clock tonight, if the sun sets there, it's the end of Sunday, and from 7 o'clock it's the beginning of Monday. So if uh, this man, John, were consistent, he would say, so on the Monday, <laughs> when they were locked up in their room, Jesus appeared to them. But what he's doing is he's emphasizing the eighth day of creation, the first day of the week, the Sunday, on that evening of that first day. He's extending the Jewish day to include the whole evening because this is the significance of that first day, the eighth day of creation, which is now new creation in a new garden with a new Adam and new Eves. To take the new creation to the ends of this old creation and re-shalom it and redeem it, and forgive sins, and drive out demons, and heal sicknesses, and bring the kingdom of heaven that's already begun on earth through the death and resurrection of Christ to all humanity everywhere to the ends of the earth. That's actually what's, what's being said here. So listen to what happens. That evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together and they locked the doors for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. However he came among them, John puts the detail they had locked the door. So he obviously didn't come through the door. Either he walked through the door or through the wall or just materialized, appeared. Imagine that. You're in a room and suddenly someone appears next to you. Oh, you would get a churut skirk, So they came and stood among them, and then Jesus said, Shalom Aleichem. The phrase is, peace be with you. That is not necessarily a liturgical peace as the church has made it. Ave, greetum, sanctum, blessum, peaceum upon you. No, that's a bit different. Um, but, you know, the Anglicans have made it a, a formal greeting of peace. It was... In Israel today, if you go to Israel, if you talk to, 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 to Glenn and people who've lived in Israel, Jewish people, their greeting, the common greeting is, Shalom Aleichem, peace be upon you. In Arabic, I have a, a Moroccan guy who cuts my hair down at Douglasdale. I say, Salam Aleikum. It's the same as Arabic, peace be upon you. So it's a common greeting. In other words, it's like, 
just say I materialize from the dead and happen to appear to Grant. And I see Grant's eyes going, oing, 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 and his heart's beating and he's staring at me. I say, how's it, dude? How's it, Abut? It's me. Shalom <laughs> Aleichem. Uh, don't worry, it's me. I'm here. I'm alive. It's me. Obviously, it's also an importation of peace in the midst of confusion. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side to convince them it's him. He's alive from the dead. It's his, it's his body. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then again Jesus said, Shalom Aleichem, peace. Shalom be upon you. Peace be upon you. And then he commissioned them. Now listen to the significance of this. And this is my last thought. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he had said that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And what John is doing here, that phrase, when he had said that, he breathed on them. That phrase in the Greek language that John chooses is the exact same phrase from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament from Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 2 how God made Adam. He formed Adam, which is the word um, um, earthling, out of Adama. He formed, in our English Bibles it says he formed the man out of the ground. It's wrong. It's not man. He, he formed Adam out of Adama. He formed the human, the earthling, out of the earth. He, sh he shaped the human body. Adam only realized he had a dingling when he saw Eve. He didn't know he was a man until he saw the equal opposite other. He was completely oblivious of that, that he was a, a male. He only, you know, we only see who we really are in the mirror of the opposite other. Only when he saw Eve, he realized, whoa, there's some things a little bit different there. And then you see yourself accurately for, for who you are when you see the opposite other for who they are. Just a little kingdom political statement. We whites will only be liberated from our white guilt and see ourselves for who we truly are when we see ourselves by encountering the opposite other called black people and see them for who they truly are. So the rich and the poor, the male and the female, the black and the white. Are you with me? And then what Jesus is, what John is saying is this. As God formed the, the earthling out of the earth, God, in the implication is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, actually knelt down because to breathe into Adam, it's, it's the kiss of life. It's, it's God's kiss. God kisses and breathes in. God gets on his knees, humbles himself, and breathes into Adam the breath of life. John uses the exact same phrase to basically say, Jesus is the new Adam breathing into life. New Adams and new Eves, whereby they are born again by receiving the spirit of the resurrection. Jesus came fresh from death. 
being raised to life, filled with the spirit of eternal life, of resurrection life. And he breathes that resurrection life into his followers. And they are born again with eternal life, resurrection, to live the future in the present, to live heaven on earth, to live the kingdom of God now. We live resurrection now. And as God, when he created Adam and Eve, he mandated them, he gave them a mandate to, multi, to rule over the earth, to multiply, fill the earth, take the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. And this new Adam, breathing into life new Adams and new Eves, you and me, all who believe, he mandates us in exactly the same way with the new creation mandate. And he says, when he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And by the way, imagine if Jesus appeared. And I, I, I should probably have some um, spearmint chewing gum first. But I won't come too close, I assure you. You, you might not be slain by the breath of my mouth. But, 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 but imagine if, if someone appears to you and goes around and goes, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. So if you're part of a conservative Baptist church, you'd probably fold your arms, like some of you have got, and you'd go, <laughs> If you're a, a raving Pentecostal, you'd have the exact opposite reaction. You'd go, More, Lord. Ah, breathe all you can breathe. More. Dear friends, your attitude determines what happens to you. Your attitude, if you're cynical, doubting, checking everything out to see if it works for me or not, you will get very little. You might get a sniff of this decent breath fresh from the resurrection. Or if you open, and if someone breathes out and says receive, you will, I would be, ah, more Lord, breathe more. I want all that you have for me, everything you want to give to me. I'm ready, I'm here, I'm receptive, I'm open, I believe. Beyond my unbelief, I believe. And then Jesus says to them, Therefore, if you forgive anyone their sins, they will be forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they will not be forgiven. In other words, go, as my Father has sent me, I'm now sending you as the new Adams and the new Eves to take this new creation of resurrection to the ends of the earth. And as you go, forgive sins. Forgive people's sins. I give you authority to forgive sins. And if people don't repent, and turn from their sin, and don't want to be forgiven, then God will hold their sin against them. And basically, the cause of all of humanity's problems, including the curse on global earth, was sin. The sin of Adam and Eve. Here is the reversal of the original cause of all human and cosmic misery. is sin. And the new mandate of the new creation, of the new Adams and Eves, is to go and reverse 
the original cause because its power has been broken. Jesus forgives sins, and therefore he defeats death because death entered creation because of human sin. Sin led to death, which is sickness in our bodies. All forms of sickness is a foretaste of mortality and death. All forms of healing is a foretaste and power surge of the future resurrection of our bodies that comes like into history. And we feel it in our bodies and we're healed. Let us stand. Yeah, I'm going to invite So, folk, I hope that you've got a little bit of a picture in your mind of what the early followers of Jesus understood as the resurrection of Christ and the significance of that resurrection. And I also hope and pray that it's brought you personal hope, personal faith, that God can really set you free from whatever darkness or death or imprisonment or tomb that you live in. You know, the pain of unemployment, the pain of poverty, there are all sorts of pain that cause deep darkness in our lives. But Jesus is risen. Jesus, there ain't no grave that's going to keep me down. There ain't no death. There ain't no sin. There ain't no doubt. There ain't no sickness. There ain't nothing that's going to keep us down. Because Jesus is risen. And you've got to believe it. You better believe it. And receive this morning the breath. Of the resurrection. So I'm asking you to open your hands in a posture of being vulnerable and open to God. And as you open your hands, I want to do a little exercise. I want you to squeeze your hands closed now, first, your wrists, into, and just imagine all the stuff that you're holding on to in your life. Any anger, any hurt, any pain, any Horrible stuff. Anything that's happened to you. Whatever you hold on to in life. Now just let go and let that go. The pain, the hurt, the anger, the materialism, the chase for money and the good life. Let it all go. Open your hands and then breathe in the spirit of resurrection. Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Father, I bless each and every person here this morning. Let the kingdom of God come upon us. Let resurrection fill us. Lord, let the breath of heaven blow upon us. I bless you. Receive the Holy Spirit. God forgives you of your sins. God breaks the power of shame and guilt. God breaks the power of depression in the name of Jesus. Any spirit of death that hangs over your family or has come through your bloodline where people in your family have died, untimely deaths, I break the spirit of death over you in the name of Jesus Christ. I break the spirit of death. I break the spirit of suicide commanded to go in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Let the kingdom of God come upon you. 
Let the light shine. Come out the tomb. You're free. In Jesus' name. You are free this morning. Breathe in more. Let the Holy Spirit move. Lord, breathe upon us. Lord, heal. Lord, deliver us. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Come. In the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just feel God's presence on your body. Feel God's presence touching your body. I break the power of cancer. I rebuke cancer. All forms of cancer. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I rebuke you, command you to leave these people's bodies. Right now, cancer, you've been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And healing, come into your body right now. Receive by breathing in your healing. Receive it into your body. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. The pain of abuse, God is speaking to me in my mind. Those of you who've been abused with words, with emotions, violence, with sexual abuse, being used and misused for other people's pleasure. In the name of Jesus, I speak healing to your abuse. Come out of the tomb of your pain. Come out of the darkness. The stone is rolled away. You can be healed from that abuse today because Jesus is right here. He's alive. I speak healing to all forms of abuse. Come Holy Spirit and heal and restore. The stone is rolled away. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. I also have another word from the Lord. I just feel, and I don't know, Jamie, looking at you, and maybe there are others here, but God is calling you to do a second turn. You've turned and you see Jesus, but you don't really see him for who he is until he calls you by your personal name. And some of you need to know God calls you by your personal name. He doesn't just say woman. He doesn't, he doesn't just say man. He says, Jamie, my son, I love you. Some of you need to have your eyes open to see Jesus for who he is and hear him calling your personal name because he knows everything about you. And he loves you. Again, let the Holy Spirit just minister that to your heart. Right now. Hear the whisper of Jesus calling you by your name. Affirming you in your dignity. In your identity. Because he loves you. And you can cling to him. You can cleave to him and become one with him. Right now. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. 